Hey everyone, I'm Janet, recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Um, just so for you guys who are new, um, we record the workshop portion of this workshop where I'm gonna ramble on about resentments for a while. And then we'll shut it off about 10 minutes before we're done where we do a Q&A and that part's not recorded. So if you wanna talk, feel free to you know ask your questions and it won't be recorded. So that being said, um, welcome. As I said tonight, we, I'm going to ramble about resentments and we I'm gonna take it right out of the big book, page 63. We're going to start there. If you were here Monday, um, we left off at step three. So just a quick um, summary for anyone who's new and joining us new and maybe new to recovery. Step one, we admit we're powerless and our lives are unmanageable, that we are beat, that no matter how great the necessity or the desire, we cannot stop eating compulsively. So, you know, if you're like me and people say to you, as they did to me, oh, if you can't stop, you must not want to. Not necessarily true. A person can want to stop, but be unable to. That's what it is to be powerless. And our lives are unmanageable. Basically, our lives were total train wrecks. So we admit that. And then we go on to step two, which is we do some work so that we get to the point where we believe that God, as we understand God, can restore us to sanity. We start having faith that this program is going to work because there's a higher power um, who this book calls God, but again, God, as we understand him, who can remove the obsession. And then in step three, once we've learned to trust this God, we surrender our lives to him. We basically say, God, I'm yours. Take me and do with me whatever you want. Help me to serve you and serve others. And we find that when we live that way, the obsession is, is removed. But there's more, right? We have um, a lot of us, and I'm one of the chief ones of this, have done a lot of damage in the past. So we can't just say, okay, starting today, I'm going to be Mother Teresa. We have to go back and clear up the wreckage of our past. And that's what steps four through nine are about. So we've just taken step three and now we're about to launch on to step four. And so the bottom of page 63, it says next, meaning right after we do our third step, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. Look at those words, launch, like a rocket gets launched vigorous action. So it's not, oh, I'll take a month or two months to do my fourth step. It's like, we need to be taking this really seriously and do it quickly. Why? Well, the next page tells us though our decision, meaning our decision to surrender our will and lives to our creators, we understand him is vital and crucial. It could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. So that tells me a lot of really cool things. It says, my decision is vital, right? Life-giving and important, but it won't have a permanent effect. Wait, they're telling me that recovery can be permanent. It is possible to never binge again but it won't be permanent unless we follow it with a strenuous effort, okay? A strenuous effort to do what? To stick to my food plan? No, 
No. Um, to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us from God. So it's my job to face them, to get it all down on paper, my defects, my resentments, my fears, my harms. And God could say, you know, Janet, you created all this mess. I'll wait for you to clean it up, but I'll be right here waiting, you know, sweetheart Janet. But God doesn't say that. God says, Janet, you put them on a piece of paper, you get out the broom, and I'll get out a broom and a dustpan, and I'll help you. And the things that are too big for you to remove by yourself, I'll do all the heavy lifting. So it's not like God meets me halfway. God meets me like 98% of the way. He supplies the power. I supply the willingness. So what do I have to do? Face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Then it says our liquor or, or food was but a symptom. Well, that's pretty interesting because sometimes people say, well, the food is what blocks me from God. But that is not what the big book says. The big book says that it's our character defects our resentments, our fears, and the harms we've caused to others, which block us from God. And when we're blocked from God, the compulsive eating or the compulsive alcoholism comes in because we have no protection. It's like if I leave a window open and it's raining, the rain is going to come in. If I don't clear the wreckage from my soul, the illness is of compulsive eating is just going to run rampant. So I think that's really important So we, that we don't say, well, food blocks me from God. If a person is in the food, it's, it's evidence that he or she is blocked from God. Um, just like if I'm coughing um, and I have pneumonia, the solution isn't to go get cough drops, right? That may make my cough a little better for a while, the solution is to get an antibiotic to deal with the pneumonia. So again, our liquor or our food was a symptom of being blocked. So we have to get down to causes and conditions. So it says, okay, we need to do an inventory. And this is step four. And it tells us the attitude we should have toward it, that, that of a shopkeeper. So a shopkeeper, um, I know once a year, will close down the shop and take inventory of every single thing that's in the shop. And they do it, you know, partly for tax reasons um, and partly to get rid of things that are expired, that are broken, that are damaged, that don't work. So that's the attitude that's most helpful for us going into it. We get rid of the character defects that don't serve us um, promptly, without regret, and it says, if a business owner is to be successful, he can't fool himself about values. Um, I know I used to think that I was way better than I actually am. I thought I was a pretty good person. It's just life didn't treat me right. You know, people were against me. God was against me. Luck was against me. Everything just didn't work out. And that's why I was in the food. And I had to sit there and look at my own mess, my own character defects. So it says, this is what we do. First, we search out the flaws in our makeup, which caused our failure. And they say it's self in all its manifestations. So again, um, I think everyone who works these steps is agreed that 
we have to do them. We have to look at our defects, our resentments and our fears, but people have different forms and different ways of doing them. So I'm just going to tell you one way, but it doesn't mean it's the only way. I just want to offer something. Um, so on our website, recoveryjam.com, we have a defect inventory sheet. And what it is, is made a list of common character defects. And then there's a space to look up the definition, look up the opposite, and then write an example of the defect. We want to get specific. See, a lot of us go around just thinking I'm a bad person. And we can't really go to God with that. Like, God, I'm a bad person. Make me good. It doesn't work that way. We go and we say, I've been selfish. I've been dishonest. I've been fearful. I've been controlling. I've been manipulative. God, please remove those from me and help me practice the opposite. So again, this is a way to just start looking at our character defects. And they tell us what the numero uno character defect is. And it says, resentment, that it destroys more alcoholics than anything else. Get that word. It destroys us. That's how dangerous it is. And it says out of resentment come all sorts of spiritual disease. Well, that's true, right? Things like venge vengefulness, um, and things, you know, all sorts of nasty defects. And it says spiritual disease. And then it tells us the order of recovery always. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So if I'm um, a sad person, that would be, I guess, a mental thing. My solution is to get right with God. I straighten out spiritually and then mentally and physically. Now, this does not mean that if someone's suffering from depression or any has any kind of mental health issues that we're saying, don't go to a doctor. We're not saying that at all. But just for the run-of-the-mill things, they're saying the, the order of recovery is spiritual first, then mental and physical. And resolving my resentments is a spiritual act that I can do. So it says, we put them on paper. I resent Joe. Why? He gossiped about me. I resent Sally. Why? She invited, you know, my ex-boyfriend to her wedding and she knows I hate him. You know, we just go list who we resent, why, and then the third column. And again, lots of different ways to do a fourth step. This is just one way. First column, who I resent. Second column, why. Third column, what it affects in me. Because every time I'm angry, every time I'm resentful, it's because something in me is affected. So maybe it's my self-esteem. So that would be maybe if someone said to me, Janet, you're an idiot. And then I cared about that person's opinion. My self-esteem would be affected. My security. Um, if I had this a lot, I used to have this a lot with my kids. I don't anymore. If they were mad at me, it would affect my security because I would feel like my whole world was on tilt, that nothing could be right with the world if my kids didn't, you know, didn't adore me. And of course, if my kids adored me all the time, then I probably wasn't doing my job as a parent. Um, but that affected my security a lot. My ambitions. 
I don't think this is just career ambitions. I think this is, there's something I want and someone is doing something to thwart my demands. So one time, um, the, I remember this back from college, my boyfriend and I were going to go spend the day in the park and it rained. So I had a resentment, I guess, against God because it rained that day. It thwarted my ambition to have a day in the park with my boyfriend. Um, our personal relations, that's what, I guess, if you went up to Melissa and said, Janet's an idiot, you shouldn't be friends with her. You would have interfered with my personal relations. My sex relations, I guess if you go and flirt with my husband, um, that it might affect my sex relations. So we want to see what's affected. And we're just, you know, the big book gives us a lot of clear examples. And it says, okay, now we have our list and we stop for a while and we look at it and we say, page 66, yeah, this world and the people in it are often wrong. And, but we can't stop there. And it, and then it says, sometimes it was remorse. And then we were sore at ourselves. So I want to say a word about being angry at ourselves because people often ask, do I put myself on my resentment list? And I actually say no. First, because it's really awkward. I mean, here's an example. Let's say I resent myself because I yelled at my child. It affects my, well, what does it affect? And like, what's my part? Well, I already said I yelled at my child. It's just, it's awkward. So I would say, instead of doing a resentment inventory on myself, I do a, I guess I would call it a repentment inventory on myself. I go to God instead of doing this whole, I resent myself where it's like, God, I indulge in the defect of yelling. Please remove it, the defect and help and replace it with kind words and help me make any amends I need to, right? Short, sweet, not awkward. We go to God confessing what we've done wrong, asking him to remove the defect and forgive us. It's a lot cleaner. It's like, I've listened to people do resentment inventories on themselves and it's just, it's awkward. And I think by just saying what I did wrong, boy, that's way more humbling than saying, oh, I resent myself because I wasn't nice to this person. To say, God, I was mean-spirited today. So I think it's more useful. So it's, it tells us, again, back to page 66. Now they're just telling us, okay, you have your list, but you can't stop here. Because um, for people like us, if we harbor resentments, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. We cut ourselves off from God. We're all going to get resentful, right? We're human beings. Um, but hopefully, um, as we go through this program, we get resentful less and less. Um, but harboring means I'm a safe harbor for resentments, that a resentment can dock, dock ship and hang out with me for a while. And I have to treat a resentment like a hot potato. I want to get rid of it right away. Why? Um, because I want to be a nice person? No, I may or may not want to be a nice person. But when I harbor resentments, it says, I shut myself off from the sunlight of the spirit. What happens when we're cut off from God? The insanity of alcohol or food returns and we drink again or binge again. And for us to drink or binge is to die. Right. We're not people who want to lose 10 pounds for a high school reunion. We're people who 
we can't stand living this way. So it says, okay, if we want to live, we have to be free of anger. And we turn back to the list for it held the key. So it's not that we have the list and we just say, dear God, you know, I have these resentments. Please remove them at this point. We don't do that. We turn back to the list. It says for it held the key to the future. It's like it unlocks the door to a future that's like in color, right? You think of like Dorothy in Kansas and then going to Oz and suddenly things are in color. We're opening a door to a life that like is in color, a life that works. And it says, okay, we have to look at this list differently. Instead of saying, yeah, here's all the 38 people who've hurt me and aren't they nasty people? It says, uh-uh, we can't wish these resentments away. So what is it? What do we do? And the first thing we do, we pretty much pray. It says, first, we realize the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. I think this is one of the mi most misused lines in the big book, because it's very easy to say, this person, this poor person down at the bottom of the mountaintop is spiritually sick. And I, on the top of the mountaintop, in my mag being magnanimous, will forgive this poor unenlightened person. We do not do that. Um, so better ways to say it, we say is this person is human, just like me, or this person is spiritually developing, just like me. And it says, um, we pray, page 67, we ask God. So remember, wherever it says ask God, it means pray. What do we pray for? that God show me, not, not that God change that person or strike them dead, depending on how angry I am, that God show me tolerance, pity, and patience. What does that mean? Tolerance. My ability to withstand pain or sorrow is raised. I'm asking God to change me so that I can tolerate more, so that things that used to bother me don't bother me anymore. Pity. Um, I've heard that that word back in 1939 meant more like compassion. Again, pity could still be me on a mountaintop looking down at that person. Um, I want to have compassion. You know, try and put myself in that person's shoes, right? Um, my mom said to me, this is a few months ago, you're so hard-headed when I was trying to help her with something. She has Alzheimer's. I have compassion. We try and put ourselves in the other person's shoes. Oftentimes that melts the resentments away. Um, and patience. Again, these are all things God to change me. Give me patience. Help me to not demand that things go on my timetable. And it says, if a person offends us, we pray. And this is what we pray. This is a, it's a sick man. So let's you let's say a spiritually developing person, just like me. How can I be helpful to him? I mean, that's often the last thing we want to do, but our program tells us to pray for that. And then we say, God, save me from being angry. I need to be rescued from my anger. I need God to, to change my heart, to like rewire some stuff in there. And then we end by saying, 
thy will be done. God, your will, not mine, be done. And then it tells us some things we don't do. We don't retaliate so we don't get them back. And we don't argue. Because it doesn't help. And then it destroys our chance of being helpful. If I retaliate and get revenge on someone, and then five minutes later, I try to help them, are they going to want my help? Or if I'm arguing with them, they're not going to want me to help. That's our goal, right? You know, to be of use, to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And it says, okay, we can't be helpful to everyone. First, it would be impossible, right? You know, there's like billions of people on the earth. So just numbers wise, it's impossible. And there's some people in our orbit, we really can't be helpful to. But the promise is that God will at the bare minimum show us how to be kind and how to have tolerance toward each and every one, 100%. Only after we've prayed for God to soften our hearts, for tolerance and compassion, then we pick up our list again. And it says, putting out of our minds what the other person did, we look for our own mistakes. So again, here's one way to do it. Instead of doing like, where was I and taking four different defects and trying to find how I had all four defects, which I don't necessarily like doing because for instance, sometimes people say, where have I been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened? Sometimes I'm not dishonest. Sometimes I'm not frightened. I'm just mad. Um, so I just do one sentence looking for my part. So we can take some examples from um, the big book when Bill's examples on page 65, where he says, I'm resentful at Mr. Brown. Um, why? His attention to my wife. Okay, so if he was to say a sentence that's his part, um, where he got the ball rolling, he might say, I should have been home more, right? I shouldn't have left my wife alone. And then the next column is the character defects. Like what, what caused Bill to leave his wife alone? Um, maybe it was, and again, this is why no one can really tell us what our part is or our character defects are. Someone could make suggestions, but two people could do the same actions and have different defects and different motives. So for instance, Bill, he wasn't home. Um, his defects could have been drunkenness, right? He's at the bar. It could have been, overwork, that he's at his job too much, right? It could have been lust, that he's at his mistress's house. So only Bill gets to ultimately decide his part and his character defects. So his other resentment, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown may get my job at the office. So how did Bill get the ball rolling? He could probably say, I did a lousy job at work. And then again, what are his defects? It could have been laziness. It could have been um, drunkenness. It could have been stealing, right? He could have been stealing from his employer and that's why he's losing his job. So here's a couple that might come up that are um, just maybe different ways of thinking of things. Um, and these are ones that I have had experience with. So let's say, for instance, I have a child who 
um, is in high school and doesn't wake up to get the school bus. So the bus waits for her every day. Um, and that cause, you know, I get angry. So I could say like, I resent my child because he or she doesn't wake up on time to get the school bus. Um, and it affects my security because I don't like knowing that the bus driver is out there waiting and fuming. And, you know, what's my part? Well, my part could be I don't enforce consequences, which could be telling the driver to leave and telling my child to either take an Uber or have to miss school. Miss school. Um, my part could be I never bought her an alarm clock, right? So I have to look and see what my part is. Um, or if I would say like, I resent my child because she keeps her room a mess. What's my part? You know, it affects my ambition to have a neat house. My part could be, I never set appropriate boundaries. That's our part a lot. We don't set appropriate boundaries. And then we get angry when people cross those boundaries that we've never set in the first place. Or let's say I would say um, I'm angry at my husband because he keeps the room too cold at night. Um, my um, what would affect my ambition to get a good night's sleep? What's my part? I never brought it up to my husband, right? I never had a lot of our part in a lot of things is would be I never had the hard conversation. And so what might be my reason for not telling my husband about the air conditioner? Um, it might be fear, right? Fear that he'll say, I don't care. And then I'll feel unloved. It might be, um, it might be vic martyrdom. I'll just sit in a room that's uncomfortable because I'm just so great and I'll suffer in silence. Um, so, you know, we all have to, again, the same thing could be different motives. Um, so let's say I'm angry because Joe gossiped about me. My part, and it would affect my, it might affect my security if I just felt, oh, I'm uncomfortable with other people liking, not liking me. My part, and this is again, I think a big one for a lot of us. I think that what other people say or think about me is any of my business. And then what's my defect there? Uh, it's really maybe boundary crossing because it's not my business. Um, another one, I'm just trying to think of ones that are like typically harder. Um, my mom and dad had a really excellent marriage. Um, they were very in love and she still mourns him to this day. But they would do this thing that would drive me crazy. And it would be like this. He would be in the living room and there would be a muffin, let's say three inches from his fingers. And my mom would be all the way on the other side of the house. And he would say, Gloria, could you come get the muffin for me? And she would run and drop whatever she was doing, move the muffin plate three inches, to right where he was and say, sure, honey, sure, dear, and give him the muffin. And he would say, I love you, Gloria. And she would say, I love you too. And then they would proceed to like kiss. Well, I resented how my dad treated my mom. And what I was told 
was that it was none of my business. Now, in that case, it's kind of easy because she was happy. But let's say she wasn't happy. And behind the scenes, she was grumbling to me like, oh, your dad treats me like a slave. It would still be the same thing. My parents' relationship is none of my business. Unless someone is being abused and needs help, grown people's relationship are none of my business. And when my kids were little and my husband would like do something like really awful, like let's say take them for fast food and I'd get resentful, it is none of my business. Or if I thought, hmm, my son just asked my husband to go outside and play basketball with him and my husband said no, you know, Daniel's going to be traumatized for life and feel rejected by his dad. I better tell Fred, like, you need to go play basketball. And if he says no, get mad. My husband's relationship with my children is none of my business. Again, unless he's, you know, leaving a baby alone in a bathtub. But as far as their relationship, none of my business. And P.S. Fred did not go outside every time Daniel wanted to play basketball with them. And today, Fred and Daniel, you know, Fred drove seven and a half hours to take Daniel to college. And me, who would always run out and try to play with him for fear he'd be scarred, I'm not the favorite parent of the two. Um, so a lot of things are none of my business. Who other people invite to their weddings, um, what other people do is not my business. So another one, um, I had an elderly relative who wanted me to spend more time with them than I wanted to. And I resented it, even though I did the right thing, spent time, was cheerful, but I was mad that I had to. And I, I really couldn't see my part because I did the right thing. And my sponsor said, and she would just like rattle off a few things and it would be like known. And sometimes it's like, that's it, that sticks. Um, and so this one was, I think I shouldn't have to do things I don't want to do. Oh, dagger to my heart, right? And the defect, selfishness, entitled. I'm entitled to do whatever I want with my time. So these are just some examples of ways to maybe just go a little deeper and try to really pinpoint my part. A lot of times it's what I think. I think that other people should. And if I'm doing that, I'm my defect is playing God. Okay. So we go, we look at our part. We, we write it down and then we see what our defects are. So it's a good thing we have that defect list that we've already worked on because now we have a list of about 20 different defects to choose from. The ones that came up the most for me were probably um, entitled, playing God, mean spirit, and mean-spirited because there were times I wanted bad things for other people, mean-spirited. So... The next thing we do after we're done with this is we do a fear inventory. And I love this part where it talks about fear on page 67. It says, fear, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. That's really interesting. Fear, like an emotion they are calling evil. I mean, being happy isn't 
evil. Being sad isn't evil. They're just emotions. But fear is different. It's corroding. And what do they say? Fear sets in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. Fear actually causes something to happen. How could that be? But of course, when we think about it, step two is um, we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So belief that God can restore us to sanity is actually the catalyst in the spiritual world for God starting to restore us to sanity. It's like faith unlocks a door. Well, if faith in God's goodness unlocks a door to good things happening to us, fear is the opposite. That's faith that God's not going to get involved. And if that's what we believe, you know, we set in motion something in the spiritual realm. They say we ourselves set the ball rolling by our fear. And this is how bad they thought fear was. They said, we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. What category is stealing in? What I think of is uh, thou shalt not steal, right? One of the 10 commandments. I'm thinking, well, thou shalt not fear is not up there as one of the 10 commandments. And then I was thinking, ah, but one of the commandments is thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's really what our third step is. God is number one. And if I'm living in fear, am I really putting God first? Am I really trusting God enough? So how do I get rid of fear, right? I can't wish it away any more than resentments. So on page 68, it tells us, we look at our fear and we ask ourselves why we had it. So again, there's a fear inventory sheet on our website. A good thing to do is... Um, drill down. So here's an example of one I had um, when my daughter was 16. Fear, if I discipline my daughter, that once she turns 18, she'll leave home and never talk to me again. Okay, then I have to drill down. Then what? If that happens, then I'll be alone on holidays. Then what? If I'm alone on holidays, I'll be sad. So I was not disciplining my daughter as kind of an insurance policy and get sadness, you know, years and years in the future when I guess my husband, my son and all my friends are dead and it's just me and my daughter left for holidays. And so I think we can drill down until we get to the point of I'll be sad or I'll be uncomfortable. So drill down and then the next column, what's my dishonest thinking? And my dishonest thinking there is, appropriate discipline is going to lead to a child not talking to me forever. And by the way, that call that, you know, the phone that rang a few minutes ago, that was my daughter calling me from college. Um, she's 21 now. We have a really good relationship. So um, we look at our dishonest thinking. And after we do that, then we pray. We ask God to remove the fear and direct our attention to what he would have us do, what he would have us be. We're not gonna get all hung up on, does it mean be, does it mean do? What action should I take? So that one, it was clear, discipline my daughter appropriately. Sometimes our fears are things like fear that someone will die. And then the appropriate action is often live in the day, just stay in today. Um, 
And I just want to point out just a really cool formula that's there on page 68 with the fears. It says, um, we are in the world to play the role that he, God, assigns. And here's the formula for serenity. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So my serenity is not dependent on how much calamity is going on around me. My serenity is dependent on how much am I doing what I think God would have me, right? Where's my obedience? And am I relying on him? Where's my trust? If I don't have serenity, I need to check my trust and my obedience because I'm probably slacking off on one of those things. And then I'm, I'm going to try real quickly to finish the rest of the chapter. Then we do um, a harms inventory where we just list our harms. Um, and again, we'll get into this in detail in steps eight and nine. So I'm not really going to go into it except to say we're going to list our harms, who we hurt, what we did, um, and a sex inventory where we go back through all our past relationships and look at who we hurt, what we did what we should have done instead. And in a lot of cases, it was either not gotten involved or gotten out of the relationship sooner. Um, and then we do a sex ideal. And I always recommend a podcast. It's probably one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. It's on a vision for you. It was January 27th, 2019 by Gina R. It was Gina and Melissa and someone else did it. Um, Melissa spoke second on step 10. So that's a bonus. Gina's talked about crafting a sex ideal and it is phenomenal. I promise you, you will take pages of notes. It was that good. And then we shape a sex ideal, which is basically how does God want me to act in my future, you know, romantic relationships? If I'm married, how does he want me to act in my marriage? If I'm not married, you know, what are kind of the criteria? What are the rules to make for myself? So um, go over to page 70. It says, okay, what if we fall short of our ideal? And it says, does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but that's a half truth. It depends on us and our motives. I think this is important. And this applies, I think, not to just falling down on our sex ideal, but anything that we're trying to do that we know is God's will and where we mess up. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, right? Because I can't take myself to better things. I don't have the power. If we're sorry and we want God to change our hearts, then we believe we will be forgiven and we will have learned our lesson. So we don't have to live with shame and guilt. We go to God, we confess what we've done wrong. We ask him to change our hearts and forgive us and we make our amends. No shame, no guilt. But if we're not sorry and we keep harming others, we are quite sure to drink. That's a promise. We will drink, we will binge if we continue to harm others and we're not sorry. So I just want to interject a word, he, um, a word here about if someone goes off their food plan. A sponsor, I don't believe, should automatically take the person back to step one. Because what if the problem is a person 
let's say their sex ideal is to not cheat on their husband and they're cheating on their husband. Well, the solution is to stop cheating on their husband. It's not to go back to step one and look at powerlessness over food again, right? So sometimes we have to look and see why did the person relapse and look at, look at that. And then it says to sum up about sex and they tell us we treat sex like any other problem. We pray for the right ideal, for guidance, for sanity, and for strength. And if sex or any other problem in our life is troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. And then we have our step four promises. If we've done this, we've begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all people, even our enemies. And we've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about ourselves, which is not fun, um, but, but it's necessary. And most of all, we realize once again that God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And we become convinced that he can remove whatever self-will has blocked us from him. So by this, in this step, we get to grow closer and closer to our loving and all-powerful creator. And with that, I pass.